curious this morning, uh, how many of us like road tripping, loading up, taking a trip? Oh, well, it was only a couple, so um, we, love, we love taking a road trip, loading the whole family up, driving across multiple states, uh, partially because we have to. Uh, we have family members that live in Louisiana, so you either like it or you grow to like it, uh, and partially because it's something fun about driving uh, across places in, in this great land that we live in and just seeing the sights and, and getting out on the road and, and being a part of uh, something like that. Uh, but road, road tripping can also be tough. Uh, one person has said, when traveling, you should lay out all your clothes and all your money and then take half your clothes and twice the money. And uh, there's some truth there. It's uh, probably good advice. It usually costs uh, more than we would expect to do that kind of thing. Murphy's Law, uh, one commentary said, uh, holds true on road trips. Nothing is as easy as it looks, everything takes longer than you would think it would, and anything that can go wrong probably will, uh, especially when you're traveling with small kids in a minivan, right? Um, Murphy forgot that part in his, uh, in his log, so we'll, we'll add it at this, this time. But uh, in our move to North Carolina six years ago, the axle brakes on our uh, motorcycle trailer and so we load the motorcycle trailer, with the motorcycle still on it, onto a U-Haul trailer, and we drive all the way to North Carolina like the, the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, we've ran out of gas, even recently, and, uh, and thanks to a, a friend that's here uh, that came and rescued us on the side of uh, 64. We were almost home. Uh, we ran out of gas. Uh, we've had blowouts on the car, on the trailer that we're pulling, and in the toddler's diaper at 3 a.m. Road trips are always an adventure, uh, especially when you're looking for a a 24-hour Walmart in the middle of uh, northern Alabama. Um, There's always something that you can expect to run into. And uh, in our text this morning, we find Paul and Barnabas on a road trip. Uh, Most people think of this text as the, the first missionary journey. That is what it was. It was the first missionary journey, not only for Paul and Barnabas, but for Christianity. Uh, the gospel is for the first time intentionally and strategically crossing uh, cultural boundaries, going to Gentiles in another part of the world. Now, we know that the gospels reach Gentiles. We've seen that already in our study of Acts. We've seen the conversion of Cornelius at Caesarea. We've seen uh, the, the conversion of the Ethiopian, uh, the eunuch there from Ethiopia. Uh, we've watched as the gospel went to Antioch. But none of those places were strategically planned gospel mission trips. Uh, They were the result of of persecution and the gospel spreading as a result of Christians being persecuted. Or uh, God specifically saying, hey, go to this place, you're going to run into this person, right? And so those were intentional things that happened, but they weren't planned attempts to take the gospel to new parts of the world. And, And this morning, what we see in our text is exactly that. We see the gospel going forth to a new part of the world with, with a focus, with intentionality, with strategy behind it. And, uh, and so we'll let the, the text be our outline this morning. We'll see three stops on this mission trip uh, in our text, and that'll sort of be our outline. So the first stop that they make is in Cyprus. Uh, you see that in verses 4 through 12. Before we read verses 4 through 12, let me remind you, in case you're wondering, while we're skipping verses 1 through 3, we covered those three verses at the end of chapter 11. When we were studying about uh, the revival that took place in Antioch in chapter 11, we added verses 1 through 3 of this chapter because it shows us that a church that's gone through revival and new life and growth is going to be an outward-focused church that sends folks on mission. And so uh, we saw that in chapter 11. This morning we pick up 
with what that trip looked like, with what that, um, that uh, mission looked like in the lives of Paul and Barnabas. So when it comes to mission trips, before we even read the text this morning, when it comes to mission trips, we often focus on the wrong things. Sometimes we get hung up on the details of, of when and where and how or for how long. And, and it's not that those things are unimportant. They're just not the most important. But we often get, they get the most attention, those details of, of when, where, how. Uh, a, a very close friend of mine who will be preaching for us in November uh, is, a, is a pastor at a, at a church in Tennessee. And, and I love the way they do some of them, not all of their mission trips, but some of their mission trips they call mystery mission trips. Folks sign up to go on a trip. They have no clue where they're going. They know how long they'll be there. And they find out where they're going when they get to the airport terminal. I love it. We're going to share the gospel. And the location, the time, all of that, those are just fine details that we'll get to later. Uh, you see in our text this morning, they don't let those details keep them from the main thing. The main thing, which is obedience. Whenever, wherever, however. Watch how simple it is for Paul and Barnabas. Starting verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So for Paul and Barnabas, it's real simple. They set sail from the closest port city to them there in Antioch. It's Seleucia. And they sailed to the port city of Salamis, which is on the island of Cyprus. It's about a 130-mile trip. In the ancient world, uh, Cyprus was sort of the way that we would regard Hawaii or the Bahamas. Uh, It was a a perfect climate. It was a beautiful landscape, perfect getaway for some fun in the sun. A lot of folks traveled there uh, for holiday, for resort. Um, and, uh, and, and what most saw as the perfect luxury vacation spot, Paul and Barnabas saw as a, as a place that was in need of the gospel, a place with lostness and brokenness. And so the application of our text this morning is that uh, we're going we're gonna to announce a sign-up soon for a mission trip to Bora Bora. And uh, it's, it, gospel's needed in luxury vacation spots. And, uh, and so anybody that wants to go on that trip, Michael said he would fully fund. Uh, so we'll, we'll have that sign-up later on the bulletin board. Um, but really, though, for Paul and Barnabas, this place is a natural connection. If you remember chapter 4, Barnabas, we learned, the son of encouragement. They gave him a nickname. Uh, he was from Cyprus. And so he's going on a mission trip to his homeland. We don't know how long it's been since he's been in Cyprus. He's been in Jerusalem for at least some time. But for whatever, uh, for whatever, whatever time he's been away, their first stop on this missionary journey is his homeland in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the area of Cyprus. And so they traveled from, from, from Salamis. Their, 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 their method is real simple here, their strategy. They, they land at Salamis and they travel to Paphos. That's east to west, uh, a distance of about 90 miles. Uh, and as they traveled, they preached the gospel. And it tells us their strategy. They went from the Jewish synagogues, preaching and teaching to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. Um, we'll see some different individuals, a couple different individuals that they meet on this mission journey and different responses to the gospel which I believe are helpful for us in application even today, how folks we can expect folks to respond to the gospel differently. But before we do, don't miss the end of verse 5. It's there for for a reason. It's important. The end of verse 5 says, And they had John to assist them. Now, lest we get this John confused with the apostle uh, John, this is John Mark. We've we've already heard a little bit about him in our text. We'll learn more about him in the rest of our study of Acts. Um, But we know a good bit about him. Colossians. Chapter 4, verse 10, shows us that uh, John Mark was actually Barnabas' Barnabas's younger cousin. 
And so uh, I guess that would make him the nephew of encouragement. I'm not sure how those type of things work. Um, but uh, but he's, a, he's, a, he's a guy from a wealthy family. He's a young man. Uh, his mom, we, we saw last week in our text, uh, lives in Jerusalem. That's the place where Peter went after he gets miraculously released from jail. And he's banging on the courtyard gate of John Mark's parents' home. And uh, as a result, uh, we, we know that he's a young man. Uh, he's well aware of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit had been doing in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And, uh, and he would go on to author the, uh, the Gospel of Mark that we just studied through last year. Uh, Mark's Gospel is written by this young man that's on this trip with them. Um, and so you can imagine this young guy. He had a desire for adventure. He had a, uh, an idea of the romance that would come with traveling the world and, and maybe even seeing another revival that, that took place in Antioch, take place in Cyprus, and how cool that would be to travel with the apostles and get to see that, right? Uh, the appeal of, of cruising to a resort location like Cyprus with all the palm trees glistening in the sun. For whatever reason, he's on this trip. But once the missionary journey gets underway, reality sets in. As we're about to see, opposition comes, and, uh, and they're tired, they're exhausted, the accommodations are not the best, the romance of the travel wears off, and Mark would begin to wonder, why am I, why am I even on this trip? Why did I come with these guys? And eventually, he'll abandon the mission, mission team. We'll see that in the text this morning, too. Um, but, but let's continue to see how the gospel went forth in Cyprus. Notice as we read, uh, there's a couple people we meet. We meet a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet. And a, a Roman governor. And watch how they respond to the, to the gospel. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul of uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now note that Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, a Roman governor with a lot of, of power, responds with willingness to hear the gospel. Uh, he was evidently tired of the materialism, the idolatry that, that characterized the Romans. He wanted something more. He wanted something real and genuine, something deeper than that. That's why he has Bar-Jesus with him to even begin with. He wanted truth. Bar-Jesus has none. So Paul and Barnabas come and they do have truth and he invites them to share with him, uh, to, to teach them. To teach him. Uh, and, and before we look at this next individual, Bar Jesus, let's, let's see how he responds. And you need to take note of this, church family, that even as we engage with coworkers, with neighbors, with family members, with people from our country or from different countries, we can expect that the gospel will reach pe- people that are open. I think we often, we often feel like that's not the case, that everyone we're going to have a conversation with is going to want to debate about religion or something, that, that, that this doesn't exist in our day where somebody's actually wanting to hear, open to hearing the gospel. And here's the kicker, church family. We don't know who those people are. We just know that they're out there. It's a picture of the, of the, of the soils, the lesson of the soils that Jesus taught, that some soils, some hearts are, are fertile soil and they're ready to receive the word. Some are not. Some are are rocky, are hard soils. Their heart's not open and receptive to receiving the word. And so whether you're sharing with with the poor, the marginalized, outcasts, or rich, powerful leaders like here in our text, we know that God has prepared uh, hearts to receive the word. That's why we must be faithful to proclaim it and leave the results to him. These fellows were nobodies compared to this governor, this Roman proconsul, and yet they stood here in front of him speaking the word of truth, speaking the gospel, and he listens. He listens. 
Well, let's, let's see the next guy in our text. We've already met him uh, in verse 6, Bar-Jesus. Let's continue in verse 8. It says, But Elymas, that's Bar-Jesus, the magician, and for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus or son of salvation. So perhaps this guy wanted a, a name, you know, his stage name, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's possible. It's, we don't know for sure, but it's possible he'd heard the story of, of Jesus and, uh, and the, the, the reputation that Jesus had and maybe wanting to get rich off of his story, power from Jesus' story. He claims to be the, the spiritual descendant of Jesus, the heir of his magical powers. He's trying to ride Jesus' coattail possibly to fame. Uh, his other name, Elymas, means skillful one or magician, as it says in the text. And we certainly see that he's living up to that. He's skillful enough to have managed... Uh, to hustle his way into controlling the most powerful ruler, governor in Cyprus with his fake magic and his phony name. He's, he's moved himself into a position of power, having the ear of the governor. And this was because the Romans placed a lot of value on, on divination and spirituality and superstition. And they also believed that the Jews had some sort of insider information on spiritual matters. The Romans would look at the Jews as having some spirituality that, that was different, Right? And, uh, and in this position, bar Jesus to be in the right place at the right time for Sergius Paulus. A few things to note here that we learn from the text, just in application, as we walk through our lives and we can expect certain things uh, living for Christ. And one of them is this, that we can know that there's a battle raging in bar Jesus, right? As the magician, the, the, the fake, is, is, is confronted with the real, the truth of the gospel, there's a war going on inside of his heart. It's the same war that goes on in the heart of every human when they are confronted with the reality of the gospel. And here's the war. <laughs> to believe this truth that I'm hearing, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it means that I must renounce pride, materialism. In other words, I must die to self and stuff. And, uh, and, and that's, that's, a, that's the struggle. That's the war going on in him. And we have to admit that, 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 that we're wrong. right? We're not just wrong about little things like, oh, I'm the one that left the TV on last night. Like... I can admit to that, maybe. Jess might say, say differently, uh, that, we, that we admit to little things. This is a big thing. This is me admitting to, that, that to be born again, to trust Christ for salvation, to repent, is, is to admit that we were wrong about everything. The most fundamental and important things, our entire lives, we were building around self and stuff. And I've got to admit that that was wrong and sinful. I was focused on me and my kingdom instead of him, the one who died in my place. And pride doesn't want us to admit that. <laughs> That's where pride comes in. And then there's the stuff. We must renounce materialism, that life is not about me and how much I can have or acquire or get or do. The gospel confronts our idols. And when that happens, a collision happens in our hearts, a war begins inside of us. We will submit to Christ, even at the cost of ourself and stuff. Or we'll hang on to those things and tell Christ he's not enough. And this is what's happening in Bar-Jesus. 
There's also another thing we need to note, a second battle taking place in our text. Not only in the heart of Bar-Jesus is there a battle going on, but there's a battle raging between Bar-Jesus and Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Right? Spiritual warfare. This is, is, is not a fantasy. I think oftentimes we think of spiritual warfare, like the stuff from the Bible and the stuff that theologians write about. Is, it's kind of like they're, they're writing, theologians write about this stuff because deep down they really wish they would have been fiction writers. And so we'll work some spiritual warfare into the, to the scriptures and to the theology so that we can have some kind of fantasy. No, it's real, friends. There's a battle going on between Bar-Jesus and these Christians as they share the gospel. And the reality is it happens today as well. When we choose to follow Jesus, we trust Christ, we become Christ's followers. If you've been following Christ for any amount of time, you know this to be true. There is real opposition that takes place in our hearts. Think of Corrie ten Boone. If you guys have heard the story of Corrie ten Boone, she would not have ended up in a, in a Nazi, Nazi, Nazi concentration camp. Say that five times fast. Uh, if, if, she would have, if she and her family would have never chosen to obey Christ and shelter uh, fellow human beings from genocide, right? Think of, of John Rogers, who would have never been burned at the stake with his wife and ten children watching if he wouldn't have taken a stand and, and, and if he would have just recounted his, his, recanted his convictions. That wouldn't have happened. And those things don't happen in a split second. It's not like those decisions were made like that. Uh, Corey Ten Boom and, and John Rogers had months to consider their choice, had months to consider their convictions. And, and am I willing to die for this conviction that I have? How many nights do you think they lay in, in bed just staring at the ceiling, unable to sleep with this question in their hearts, with spiritual warfare taking place in their hearts? Do I, do I give in? And repent or apologize for these convictions, to recant these convictions, or do I take them to my, to my death? Do I die for them? That's spiritual warfare, and it's real, and it's a real cost for following Jesus. You never share your faith, you never have to look like a fool. You never, never stand up for righteousness on a social issue, you won't be rejected. You never walk out of a, a movie or a play or a concert because it's offensive or sacrilegious, you'll never be called a prude. You never reach out to the needy. You'll never be taken advantage of. You never practice honesty in your, your business as a business owner. You'll probably not lose a relationship with the not-so-honest associate or partner. Never give your heart out and it'll never be broken. Never go to Cyprus and you won't be confronted by the attacks of Satan through an evil sorcerer. But follow Jesus and you'll experience all sorts of sorrows, all sorts of hurts, all sorts of deep and real pain and spiritual warfare, and come to realize in eternity that those things were just a blip, just a blip on the spectrum of time. They were nothing. Those sufferings pale in comparison to the glory and the beauty of Christ that awaited you. I think if you were to be in heaven right now and ask Paul and say, Paul, those things were bad, right? That, that, was, that, was, that was harm. Like when you were put in prison and beaten and, and confronted with this evil sorcerer, didn't it hurt? Wasn't it hard? I think he would look at you and say what he's already said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. No. No, for this was but a momentary, it was just a light momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Was it painful? Sure. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Was it hard? Absolutely. Was it worth it? 10,000 times it was worth it. The battle now is worth the glory there every single time. And there's a spiritual battle raging, and we see how it unfolds. It's pretty intense. 
If you, uh, if you see there in the text, Paul curses the man, calls him a son of the devil. <laughs> and then further, he puts a curse on the man so that he's blind by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's made blind. And uh, you as a parent may be hearing this and tempted to cover your, your kids' ears or skip over to this section in family worship time. Paul isn't being so nice here, so we're just going to skip this passage. Don't do that, friend. Don't be tempted to that. Don't miss the bigger picture here. Paul isn't just being a, a playground bully. He's not just picking on this guy uh, as a bully. Sergius Paulus's soul was at stake here. And Paul desperately wanted him to believe upon Christ. Eternity is the difference here. Life or death. Eternal life or eternal suffering. And on top of that, you've got to consider all of those in Cyprus that would be influenced by the, the governor coming to know Christ, right? All of that's in the scales, in the balances here. And so, yes, his words are firm. They're harsh words, but they're, they're warranted words. They're necessary words. Remember how even Jesus spoke about those who would hinder children from coming to him. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said it would be better that they'd have uh, millstones tied around their necks and, and, and tossed into the sea. In other words, killed. Than to hinder someone or, or keep someone from coming to faith. To call someone to stumble in their faith. Friends, eternal life is serious business. And instead of thinking Paul's being a little bit harsh here and he needs to calm down, I think Paul would tell us we need to wake up. I don't think we take it seriously enough. Well, let's see what happens in verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul believed. <laughs> and when he saw what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Friends, think in the, the contrast that Luke is painting here. Darkness fell upon Bar-Jesus, the son of darkness, who's blind. While light, the light of salvation, burst forth on this Gentile ruler, Sergius Paulus. A Jewish background magician who, who should have recognized Christ as Savior and been brought into the light is in darkness. While this Gentile ruler, this Roman pagan, is now brought into the light of the gospel. And look what did it. Look what did it. He believed, in verse 12, when he saw what had occurred. Why? For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't smoke and mirrors. It wasn't sorcery or magic shows. He'd experienced plenty of that with our Jesus. It wasn't even the power that Paul exhibited from the Lord as he cursed Bar Jesus and made him blind. Certainly that was an incredible thing. But it wasn't that. He believed, Sergius believed when he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When he heard the teaching of the gospel. When he heard the truth, when he heard the word. One of you uh, brought an article to my attention on Facebook this week. And uh, I don't do a lot on Facebook, and so sometimes I see these things, and sometimes I don't see these things. Uh, but this time I saw it, and it reminded me of this verse. And in particular, this part of this verse, that it was the teaching that made the difference in Sergius's life. I'll read this a little bit of this article from you. It's, it's lengthy, but I think it's worth it for us this morning because the the reality is resounding in her in the same way that it was in Sergius Paulus. The article is a lady sharing a bit of her testimony. It says this, My social media feeds are full of churches boasting about the trendy new initiatives that they've begun. I see pictures of Starbucks-style coffee bars. I hear about lighting sequences that resemble a Broadway show. I read catchy sermon titles that incorporate movies and popular culture. On February 14, 2017, my life changed. 
My husband passed away after a two-year battle with cancer. Over the first year, he was hospitalized 18 times. He was rushed to the emergency room eight times and spent hundreds of days separated from our two children. Eventually, the chemo caused paralysis. For the last four months of his life, he was confined to a bed. But throughout the cycles of chemo, throughout the separation from his children night after night, throughout listening to doctors telling him bad news after bad news, he never once said how much he appreciated the coffee bar at the church, never once how much he loved the lighting in the sanctuary, never once told me how cool it was that they put a couch on the platform. He didn't boast about the use of graphics or props on the screens. Instead, he talked about Jesus. He quoted scripture. He reminded me of sermons that we'd heard. In the middle of long nights, he sang songs of praise and worship to God. He spent his remaining time praying. And he did those things because there's only one thing that will help you through that kind of storm. It's only Jesus. She goes on to say, I don't have my best friend with me anymore. She said, on February 13th, I had the most difficult task of telling my children that their dad was not going to make it. The next day at 724, the doctors declared him dead. And as I lay next to my children at night, listening to my daughter sob uncontrollably because she misses her dad so much, I'm not thinking about how trendy my church is. I'm thinking that my strength comes only from God. I don't have my best friend with me anymore. And even though I take comfort in knowing that he's in heaven, the reality is I can't talk to my husband. I can't text him during the day. I can't share my frustrations with him. I can't hold his hand. I can't hug him. I can't kiss him. He's not here. And so as I drive to church, I'm not grateful that the leaders are reading how to grow your church books or adopting cool sermon series. I'm thinking about how desperately I need Christ. As I look at two young children who now have to grow up without their amazing dad by their side, not remembering how awesome it is that the minister related the message to a Hollywood film, I'm thinking about how much they and I need Jesus. When I walk into church, I'm not paying attention to the decor. I don't have to smell freshly brewed coffee in the lobby. I don't need to see a trendy pastor on the stage. I don't care about the graphics or the props on the platform. I'm hurting in a way that's indescribable. And when I go to church, I desperately need to hear the word of Christ. Did you hear it, friends? She's saying the exact same thing that Luke says in Acts about Sergius Paulus. What did he need? It wasn't a show. It wasn't magic. It wasn't entertainment. It wasn't to know even that God could still do these types of miracles. He needed the teaching of the gospel. It's what made a difference in both of these individuals, the word of Christ. And in a moment of deepest agony, that's exactly what she realized she most desperately needed was the word of God. And so the the call for us this morning, friends, fall in love with Christ. Fall in love with the Christ of the word and the word of Christ because that's where you know the Christ of the word. And when you do, those other things fade into the background. Those preference-type things fade into the background when Christ is front and center and we realize that he's truly what we need. It's what it was for Paul, Sergius Paulus. It's what it is for Matt James. It's what it is for each and every one of us. We need Christ. Second stop on this uh, missionary journey was in Perga. Before we read, note that there's not a lot of information given to us about this stop in their trip. In fact, it's only one detail given to us. Uh, read with me in, in, in verse uh, 13. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in uh, Pisidia. So the team left Cyprus and they headed to Perga, which is in modern day Turkey. Uh, It's inland, so they likely traveled by foot. 
Uh, And it also seems they didn't stay very long here because there's only one detail given to us about their time here. And and it's uh, that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But let's not think that there's not something for us here in that small detail. It's included in the word of God for a reason. So what do we learn? It's this, that we should not be surprised, church family, when we face disagreements while serving the Lord with brothers and sisters that also know the Lord, right? John Mark is not Bar-Jesus. He's not evil. He knows the Lord. He's on this mission team with these believers. So what is it? Why does he leave the mission team? Is it that he missed uh, Mama's cooking back in Jerusalem? Uh, did he protest maybe the, the, the shift of leadership from his cousin Barnabas to now Paul? If you note, this is a small note, but it's important. Verse 9, there's a shift that takes place in Acts. Paul is either mentioned by himself or first um, when it list, lists a, a group of names, uh, showing us that there's a shift that's taking place. Paul is now the clear, he's identified as the clear leader of this mission team. Maybe, maybe John Mark didn't like that as much. Maybe he liked it when his cousin Barnabas was seemingly uh, leading, right? He's the one that went and, and, and found uh, Paul and brought him back to Antioch to become a teacher in the first place. Maybe he got sick. Maybe he got sick when they landed in Perga. Maybe he disagreed with Paul's zeal for reaching the Gentiles. We don't know. It's not told to us. The text simply says that he left. And he'll show up again later. Uh, and and, and so, so he's not done yet. Actually, later when he shows up, it's Barnabas trying to persuade Paul uh, to let John Mark come on another trip. And Paul responds negatively. And that's in chapter 15 of Acts. We'll get to it eventually. Uh, but Paul says, no, he's left us. He's not coming back. He's a deserter. We're not taking him on another trip. And so though we're not given the specifics here, we can be sure of one thing. This team had their fair share of relational conflict for whatever reason. Uh, we can be sure that we'll have them too. All right? If an apostle can lead your mission team of three people and you can have conflict, then you can be sure that when we get together as the body of Christ and do anything, there's potential for conflict, uh, even among well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the good news. We can see this later in the text of Scripture. Conflict doesn't have to end in failure. It didn't in this case. In Mark's case, he finishes well, right? When Paul writes um, his, his last letter, 2 Timothy, he says, bring Mark with you for he's useful to me in the ministry. He says that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so in, in, in that verse, we see in 2 Timothy, and this is what's really neat, that grace and restoration has happened somewhere in this narrative, right? Because in Acts chapter 13 that we're in this morning, he's, he leaves. Paul is done with him to the point that he, he says, no, he can't come back. But then by 2 Timothy chapter 4, John Mark is so useful to Paul that as Paul writes from prison, chapter uh, 4 of, of, of 2 Timothy, he asks, he's one of the few things that Paul says, hey, you can send John Mark to me. He's helpful. He could have asked for anything. He says, hey, send John Mark to me. He's useful to me in ministry. So reconciliation has happened. Restoration has happened there. And that's encouragement for us, church family. As we, as we passionately serve Christ, in our flesh, we're going to stumble. We're going to have words with even other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean that they're dead to us, right? It means that we're required to go to them, to humble ourselves, ask for forgiveness, be restored, so that we continue to serve Christ together. You think, well, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be easier if we just kept our distance? Like, they do their thing, they serve in their ministry, I'll do my thing, I'll serve in my ministry. No, friends. It's better that you be reconciled. What a picture of the gospel, Right? What a picture of the power of the gospel in our lives that we can disagree, maybe even argue, and yet come together and be made right and restored to one another. Third stop on their missionary journey. Third stop we see here is Pisidian Antioch. 
Now, this is not the Antioch where they left, where they started their journey. This is another Antioch. This is Pisidian Antioch, and it's in the, the Roman province of Galatia. Now, the majority of chapter 13 is his sermon to Pisidian Antioch. We're going to summarize the main points of that sermon, because in many ways it resembles Peter's sermon from Pentecost in chapter 2. Uh, it's also interesting to note that uh, one of the main themes in this sermon to this, to this group of people is justification by faith alone, that we're saved, we're made right from our sins by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not works, um, which is also the theme of the book of, or at least one of the themes of the book of Galatians, a letter that Paul will eventually go on to write to this same group of people. And, uh, and so though we're going to hit this pretty quickly this morning, you can dig into the book of Galatians and have scriptural commentary on exactly this sermon. And so that's a pretty neat feature of, of Galatians. Before we get into the sermon, though, note the setup. Note what happens. Verse 14. It says, On the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, uh, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, and then, that goes into the sermon. So here's the strategy. It's the same when they get to Pisidian Antioch. They go first to the Jews, to the synagogue, uh, the synagogue, and they, they, they then go from there to the Gentiles. It was custom in the, in the synagogue to, uh, in their worship, in their gathering, to open and read from the law of Moses. And then a text would be read related to it uh, from the prophets. Then they would have a, a recitation of the, of the Shema uh, from memory, and then they would pray prescribed prayers. Um, oftentimes, though, they would give an explanation of the text they had just heard, um, especially if a visiting rabbi was there. If there was a rabbi there from somewhere else, maybe visiting the synagogue, they would ask him, even spontaneous like, like this, to stand and explain the text to us, explain the scriptures to us. And so perhaps they had heard that Paul was a student of the famous rabbi Gamaliel and that he was with them that day. And so they asked him, hey, you want to give us some exhortation from the passage? And Paul just sees a green light, right? <laughs> and that's exactly what Paul was waiting on. You just gave me a green light to tell you about Jesus, and you don't even know it. <laughs> and so in his mind, they're begging him to share the gospel, and that's exactly what he does. Note real quickly, uh, in the time that we have left, there's sort of three parts of his sermon and then the response to the sermon. And so the first part we see is an introduction. He's leading them uh, to Jesus from their scriptures. He's taking them through their Old Testament to show them how it's connected to Christ. And that's verses 16 through 25. Uh, Paul begins his sermon by showing them how gracious God's been in Israel's history. He reminds them of their past. And in these verses, you'll notice that God is the subject of almost every verb that he chooses. Sixteen times in these verses, Paul uh, shows them that God is the primary actor. God is the one working. He's the one doing everything in their history. And now up to verse 22... The Jews that would have been in the synagogue that day were probably just all over themselves, just shouting hallelujah, praise the Lord, preach it, brother, amen, that's, that's exactly right. This dude, Paul, can really, he can really bring it. He's getting after it. And then you get to verse 23, and Paul drops a bomb on them. He connects the son of David, who they would have all known, all been revered. He connects the son of David, or he connects David to the son of David, and that being Jesus in verse 23. Makes it clear that Jesus is the prophesied one. He's the Messiah, the one, the seed of David that's come, the promised son of David, the deliverer, the Messiah. And that leads to the second part of his sermon, where that really becomes the, the, the pinnacle, the, the climax of his sermon. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Verses 26 through 37, Paul's focus is on what he calls, verse 32, the good news, right? That's not something we make up. We don't call the gospel the good news uh, because it's something trendy we've done in the church. That's actually what Paul calls it. It's, It's the announcement of good news, and that's what he does in verses 26 through 37. He walks them through the story of Jesus' life that you didn't recognize him. These Jewish leaders, they didn't recognize him as Messiah. They even found him guilty and condemned him. Uh, when there was no guilt, when there was no wrongdoing, verses 27 and 28. And they condemned him to a criminal's, criminal's death. Then in verse 29, they take him off the cursed tree, the cross, and they place his corpse in a tomb. But here comes glory, verse 30. Paul's walking them through the gospel. You see how he's doing that. Verse 30, God confirmed Jesus' identity as Messiah by raising him from the dead. In other words, Paul's saying the resurrection proves that God accepted the sacrifice for sin that Christ offered on our behalf. So Christ was Messiah, son of David. He died a criminal's death. Even though he wasn't guilty, he was placed in a tomb and he was raised. That's the gospel, friend. He's taking them through the gospel. And listen, if you've never repented of your sins, trusted Christ, followed after Christ by faith and repentance, then friends, this message from Paul is not just for the people of Pisidian Antioch. It's for you today. It's for you. You need to hear this. Christ died on your behalf. It's not just a story that Paul was telling these folks and that he'll eventually get killed for. He's announcing that news to you today as well through the scriptures. Another thing Paul did in this part of his sermon was he showed how Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that their Jewish prophets had foretold. Uh, I can give you an example. See the example in, uh, in that in verses um, 36 and 37. What he's just done is taken Psalm 2 verse 7. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 10, and Isaiah 55, verse 3, all these Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah that would not see corruption. In other words, not decay. He would not stay in a tomb. He would not rot. And then in verses 36 and 37, he says this, For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, in other words, died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, he, he decayed. He, he's dead. But, verse 37, but he whom God raised, that's Jesus the Messiah, did not see corruption. In other words, Paul's showing them that Jesus fulfills the very things that your prophets said would be true of the Messiah. It wasn't David that it was speaking about. It was Christ, the son of David. And so Paul's making the main thing the main thing here in his preaching, friends. He's showing the death, burial, and resurrection as the most important thing in human history. He made those things the main thing in his preaching so that these listeners would have to wrestle with the most important realities in life. There there was a man who died on their behalf, and that man was the Son of God. And we need to wrestle with the same today. Why did the Son of God die if there was any other way that your sins could be forgiven? Better yet, what kind of chance do you think you have to stand before God if that gift that he offers you in the death of his son, you just looked at and went, nah, I don't know that I believe that. Or nah, I can wait till later. I can do that sometime later in my life. I don't have to submit to that. I don't have to repent of my sins and give up self and stuff. Friends, this is why Paul made this front and center. It's the most important thing you need to hear today. Christ died on your behalf so you don't have to die. Third thing in his sermon is the application of this truth. Verse 38 and 39. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here's what Paul says. Here's the good news, friend. Forgiveness is for you. 
Forgiveness is for anyone who would come and believe upon Christ. That's how you receive that forgiveness in Christ. It's through faith and belief in his finished work on the cross. It's not through keeping the law. Moses' law could not deliver you from that. It was Christ and his substitutionary death. That is the only way you can be saved and receive this forgiveness. And everyone who believes will be. Paul wants you to understand this this morning as well, church family. He's writing this for our benefit as well. If you need more commentary on this, go pick up the book of Galatians. It's all throughout Galatians. Faith, based on your faith, justification of sins, eternal life with Christ forevermore. Well, finally, we see the result of this sermon, and it's a mixed reaction. Real quickly, one group wants to hear him more, verse 42 and 45. And from among those that want to hear him more, verse 43, some followed Paul and Barnabas. Uh, this is likely a physical and spiritual following. They, they continued to hear him. They wanted to learn more. Yet there were others who were jealous. They saw the crowds. They saw this new teaching that it was attracting uh, a lot of folks. And they began to insult Paul and Barnabas. They began to contradict them, the text says in verse 45. Stir up trouble. Call them liars. Chase them out of town. Overall, there was a rejection by the Jews. There were some that believed. We see that in the text. There were some that believed and followed, but overall, there was a rejection. And this led Paul and Barnabas to focus their time on the Gentiles, verse 46. They spent their time with those who were not Jewish background. And the Gentiles, verse 48, rejoiced and believed. And here's the good thing, that we're recipients of this today. Verse 49, because the word of God spreads throughout the region as a result of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. Those who were not a part of the people of God became the people of God because they believed. And rejoicing is what happened after that belief. And so in the end, here's what we see in Pisidian Antioch. And it's exactly what we see in our day. Even in this room right now, it's happening. That some are intrigued by the message of Jesus and they're willing to hear more. I'm kind of interested in that. I'll listen to more. Some are offended and outraged by it. Just, just plumb enraged that, that you would say a dude was killed, murdered because of my sin. That's offensive. Some believe it completely and it's the best news they've ever heard in their entire lives. It changes everything. Some are encouraged and filled by joy as a result of hearing it. And I know that's happening for some, even in this room, that for the 10,000th time maybe, you're hearing the gospel and it's just not old news. It's not something you can get over. Even as you hear that Christ died on your behalf, your heart fills with joy that you don't have to suffer the consequences of your sin for all eternity. And your heart rejoices. And so the question that I'll leave us with this morning is which one of those responses are you? Which one's happening in your heart right now? I pray by the Spirit of God he would draw us to him. That this morning we would rejoice in salvation that's brought in Christ.